0: myself a very long-standing senior member of wise brussels and currently a member. That's Lovely, you can call me a dinosaur <laughs> <laughs> honey i'm presenting myself as a founding member so you so <laughs> you're an <laughs> <last> absolute <laughs> and welcome to wise brussels voices i'm ilana betel i'm a member of wise brussels that's women in international security and i'm your host for this conversation with people who are helping to advance our organization's goals of empowering women in the fields of peace security defense and leadership this is our summer episode A time for a bit of relaxation and reflection and a fun discussion about women, WISE, and leadership. Joining me are Pauline Massard, a member of WISE Brussels steering committee and one of the real pillars of our organization. We also have Florence Ferrandeau, who is also a member of the steering committee and the woman behind the WISE podcast channel and the technical genius who enables it. Thank you both so much for joining the Summer Podcast. Thanks, Ilana. Thank you. Well, I think we should just live up to what I just introduced a time for a bit of relaxation and reflection and a fun discussion. But to kick off, why don't everybody just give us a little bit of a sense
1: about your background and where you come from? Pauline. Thanks. So I'm French. I've been in Brussels for longer than I care to admit, I think 12 or 13 years now. I currently head the uh, Strategic and Economic intelligence team at Avisa Partners. And I was previously at the European Defense Agency at the Think Tank Friends of Europe and began my career when I was very, very young and full of hope at uh, TELES, so uh, uh, a defense company. I came to defense Really by luck, but grew to love it, and I have found Wise and its incredible network of women to be a major driving force uh, in my years in in Brussels. Wow,
0: good background, very interesting, very noir in very many ways, or at
2: least the international bubble of Brussels. Florence? Uh, so it would be a little bit less impressive than Pauline, I guess. I'm in Brussels since uh, three years and a half now. Uh, so I'm French as Pauline. And uh, I've been working as a consultant in security and defense uh, since I arrived. And just uh, before that, I have few experience in France doing an internship in defense companies such as uh, MBDA, uh, Safran, and some uh, really short also internship uh, in uh, police force and the uh, Ministry of Defense uh, of our Force now and uh, I joined uh, as well uh, wise uh, since three years now I guess more or less uh, and uh, I was uh, yeah recruited by Pauline who's, uh, hugging her head and now like super <laughs> super happy to have uh, to have this uh, this new member uh, to bring this new yep. member I guess and uh, voila I guess that's it. To my side? Well,
0: that's great. Um, just a little bit about me. i um, I came here for six weeks nearly twenty three years ago. I took leave of absence <laughs> from the UN because I thought I wanted to uh, uh, see what the private sector was like I think Brussels is full of people who came for a stage for six weeks for a year and you know here we all are it says something about either us or Brussels um, <laughs> before that I was indeed in the UN I was a peacekeeper in Bosnia and in the Department of Political Affairs and since I've been here I've been both uh, um I divide my time more or less between uh, um, writing an academic um, newspaper uh, and media activity, but mostly consultancy. So I think one of the things that we all three of us have in common is this very vague, but um, highly prevalent profession in Brussels called consultancy. Yeah. And I think <laughs> it behoves us with a glass in hand to not only raise a glass to consultancy, but to <laughs> demystify it a bit. Because lots of people ask me, I don't
1: know if they ask the two of you, what do you actually do? Yeah. So Pauline, how would you explain it? Well, it's interesting that you should say that because when I was recruited for my current job, I had no idea what consultancy was all about. And in fact, even after my then-to-be-future boss had explained it to me extremely clearly, I remember attending a staff meeting actually where Florence was as a brand new, I think she'd been in the company for three months, and I sat in on this two-and-a-half-hour staff meeting and I left on the verge of tears thinking, I will never be able to do what these people do. I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> so it is important to demystify consultancy. Um, what we do, however, is not the same as what another consultancy does. I mean, I think we put a lot, I don't know what you think, Ilana, but I think consultancy covers anything from public affairs, lobbying, all the way to research, which could be likened to academic research in some instances. I and mean, what we do at Visa Partners, at the Strategic and Economic Intelligence Practice, um, we conduct research studies and uh, consulting work, mostly for public sector customers, so EU institutions. And what we really try to do is... Look at their problem from our own perspective. And try to bring answers to key questions. Now, those uh, questions can be at very strategic level, if I think of some of the work we do for the, the, the French government. It can be very, very technical, operational uh, level. We can talk later about a study that uh, Florence just conducted on the nuts and bolts of a European defence standardisation. But really, ultimately, it is always about understanding what our clients real challenges are conducting research and turning that research into intelligence, information, and actionable recommendations.
0: Wow, well, I think you've actually defined consultancy much better than most people who've been doing it for decades, oh, um, yeah. myself
2: included. That's, that's um, her job that. to pitch it, you know. That's why she has a lot of training.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, pitch is a, a very big
2: part of consultancy, there's no doubt about it. Oh. So how would you define uh, Yeah, we quite have the same speech, I think on addition to what Pauline just said, because she Really summarize it quite well. Um, what I think is maybe a uh, little specific as well on our company is that we also really act as a bridge b- builder, like between different communities, which is really interesting. So you also have all these parts of organizing events, such as huge one uh, exhibition, you know, like uh, the International uh, Cybersecurity um, Forum. Or a smaller event really in the framework of a contract, like a workshop with, uh, I don't know, 20 people to discuss something or to brainstorm any question or any solution. So, and I think in addition, because it really is what it was interesting about uh, Pauline, how she bring it, is that how to answer to the needs and to the question of the uh, customer. I say that sometime they come with a question and the true challenge is to really Identified what they don't know already, their needs, but what they really need at the end, and not what they think what they, they say need right they now. Know. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: I think you've both got something there. Uh, the way I tend to add to what you've said probably is that Brussels is a very interesting city to work in and do consultancy in, and it's very different from any other place because um, you actually get to do policy work here in many ways. Consultancy in a lot of capitals and a lot of parts of the world is usually much more PR, more mm-hmm. media and strategic communications. Or even when it's called public affairs, it's mostly lobbying or um, things like that, or as you said, sort of a form of intelligence. Because there's such a huge policy world here going on, because most companies can't afford to have full representation here, um, And because actually there's not that many think tanks in Brussels. Um, Consultancy here, the reason it attracts such high caliber people and we tend to stay is that you get to do a lot of policy work. A lot of the things that get done in other places, my perception, um, in think tanks, for example, or in-house in a big company, um, get done by consultancies here. So we actually get to do, and let us lay emphasis here for our audience that isn't part of the Brussels bubble, that doesn't mean that we lobby. That doesn't mean that we spend our time trying to get our clients in front of our commissioners or the commission. It actually genuinely means that you do um, research. Mm-hmm. Um, you try and understand policy. You try to explain policy. You try to explain what's wrong with the policy. And you interact with policymakers, in many cases, in order to improve it or change it. And I think that is what is unique about the Brussels model. And that's why we all stay, is my perception.
1: I agree. And I would add, and going back to something that Florence mentioned, which is the being a bridge between various communities which don't always either interact or understand each other and get lost in translation. A lot of our work is to make sure that academics speak to policymakers, that uh, engineers talk to political leaders, that the the various worlds, or in a nutshell, you can always break it down in three, but grosso modo, politics, academic and industry, talk to one another, understand each other, and that the final result, which indeed, as you say, Elana, is policy, reflects the realities of the sector. And this is actually useful and not just another piece of paper.
0: Absolutely. Because one of the things I found, which I really didn't understand before, was that this what i tend to call the magic triangle which is um if you want if you see the the institutions especially the commission and the parliament as the legislator and the executive um and you see um uh, your clients as the private sector we're helping to create that dialogue Mm -hmm. that actually brings about um the best possible outcomes because if uh um policy makers just make it in a, a kind make policy in a bubble, then you know, it's it's the king saying, Let it be written and let it be done. It's nearly meaningless. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, um if, you know if industry has all its own way, we'd all of us be absolutely in the worst possible place because they would just do it for profit. But actually by bridging those two and bringing in civil society too, in many cases, you really get a good dialogue. One of the ways I tend to explain, for example, the real tragedy of the financial crisis was that there's no civil society organizations working in finance because anybody who understands anything at all about finance is either doing policy or making money as a banker there's very few civil society organizations that work in finance and that's where the system failed really because in many other areas the system works really well because you have the magic triangle civil society institutions business and then you get them all having to compete and bring about a good outcome Um, As soon as one of those isn't there, you don't get an outcome that works. So that's what I've learned out of 23 years on the back of six weeks in in Brussels. But coming closer to our subject, one of the other things I found about consultancy is it's one of the areas in Brussels, um, if not in the world necessarily, in which women do get to the top. Um, Maybe tell me about the consultancy you two work in. Pauline, you're clearly senior. Um, But I would add in that there's quite a lot of head of um, offices in Brussels um, who are women.
1: Indeed. Um, So I am myself as a a director. Uh, It is true that our company is still a bit light uh, in terms of numbers of female partners. And certainly if I look at what it is that we do, which is think creatively about issues, you need diverse teams to be able to do that. And so certainly our management places a a very strong uh, emphasis on having diverse teams. In terms of absolutely senior management, yes, we still have some way to go, I'm not going to lie. In terms of the sectors that Florence and I work in more specifically, we are, of course, in traditionally very male-dominated sectors because, yes, we are consultants, but we are consultants specialized in domains of national sovereignty, We work first and foremost in security or defense or cyber issues and these traditionally are very male-dominated because it's the military because it's the police forces or it's because it's engineers and hoodies hacking computers at night and they are all very very male-dominated so we're we're moving the the milestones slowly
2: slowly but yeah we're moving I guess well uh, I think people People now, like customer that I can have, they are less surprised now to see a person like me, so a young uh, woman in the meetings that maybe like two years ago, I don't know. I don't know if my perception f- changed on it because I grew, grew up also and took some confidence on it. But um, yeah, I think there is less like, uh, this one is going to teach me about, you know, my stuff. It's
1: true. It's true. And what is interesting is that for the past, I'm going to say six months to a year, luck has had it that several of the the projects that we've worked on have been all female both from our side and from the client side in the various EU institutions and that has been really interesting uh, because very often Florence and I are the only female members of a team when you bring together the client team and us Uh, but recently we've had that experience so I'm very hopeful about the future in this.
0: Well that's really good to hear because I mean You can imagine when I started out working with defense companies 23 years ago, I was literally the only woman in the room. Mm. I mean, you know, not just in one team or another team. And um, I think that is changing. Um, But... I don't think it's changing fast enough, which I suppose will bring us into the really fun part of this discussion. Gossip. What do we think has been happening in the EU in terms of women and leadership? How do we think that's been going over the past year to 18 months? Honestly.
1: In the past year to 18 months? Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, undeniably, excuse me, uh, COVID has had an impact. I mean, I think it's, it's, Relatively obvious to me, at least, um, that working mothers have borne the biggest brunt at home of be it homeschooling or simply surviving uh, during homeschooling. Um, number one, and so I—I I mean, there's lots of studies on this saying that women have had it harsher economically, be it because of redundancies linked to COVID or in terms of managing work and personal life uh, during home working. I think we can go beyond a year to 18 months. I think uh, gender equality, be it in EU institutions or in the private sector, still remains a slogan for me to a large extent. Now, I'm not going to accuse everyone of everything either. I'll take the sector I know best, which is the military sector, be it the industrial side or the armed forces side. Um, It's a fact there are less female soldiers than males. This is slowly changing, but it is a cultural thing. And when I say cultural, it's both a cultural issue for armed forces themselves to accept women in uh, frontline combat roles, in senior leadership roles, and not just as medics or whatever else. Um, And in industry, of course, uh, if you look at the defense or security industry at large, it's very much an engineering industry. And let's face it, until we actually teach our young girls that they shouldn't be afraid of math, that they shouldn't be afraid of physics, that they shouldn't be afraid of technical aspects altogether, we're not going to make much progress. I'm going to take a quick moment here to acknowledge Florence for a minute because um, we have a running joke in the office. We call her a Michelle the engineer. Come on. Because she's one of the only people in the office who's first of all able to troubleshoot any IT problem we ever have. Uh, but in addition, she works on very... Technically complex topics, uh, be it homomorphic encryption, defense standardization, uh, all things uh, big data, artificial intelligence, cloud. She's not afraid of going after these topics. It doesn't mean she has prior knowledge. It just means she's not afraid of it. And I myself, having been afraid of these topics, because I thought, oh, I'll never understand it. Why was I? Why did I used to think that? Because I was raised to think that. And so Florence has really shown me that just read, study, get to know your topic, do your homework. And it's not so scary anymore. And I think that's something that we need to instill actually today in very much younger generations. Sorry, that was a long rant.
0: A merited rant, a merited rant, especially in... uh, um you know, in our summer podcast, but also a merited um, explanation of how fantastic Florence is. Because if not, there wouldn't be a podcast. That's it. <laughs> Come on. I say I am trying. <laughs> Don't do it too but much. It's absolutely true. But I did want to point out one thing, which is that um, there are a lot of women studying engineering now. The issue is much more, so I've just brought up um, the 2018, which I think is the last Eurostat on studies and the average is 41 percent of women who Uh graduate in engineering apart from four member states that was lithuania bulgaria latvia and denmark where they were over 50 percent not high over 50 percent but 50 percent i think that one of the issues is much more to do with once you graduate from engineering um choosing things like um heavy duty i don't know defense and aerospace or uh, um, you know the heavily male preponderant areas of engineering, for example and it's the same with I think everything to do with technology that you know even if you do study technological areas and even if you do study maths, I think a lot of women graduates wouldn't necessarily go into the areas in which you would be doing stuff to do with everything from moonshots to um, uh, rockets and uh, um, cyber defences and areas like that. Uh, they'd go into the softer area, maybe what's perceived to be softer areas yep. of technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, we always come back to, in many ways, to the issue of, unless you're willing to move into those areas, like in a sense the three of us have mm-hmm. in our different ways, it, you know,
1: you're not going to make that breakthrough. And yet what is interesting is that if you look at these sectors, but at a strategic level, um, there are uh, massively, exponentially increasing numbers of women who are now graduates of strategic studies, military studies, from a policy side.
0: But I still insist on bringing us back to the EU. We're nearly two years into a commission. Um, What do we think is happening in terms of women in leadership? We have a strong leader in Ursula von der Leyen. But the EAS, I mean, you know, on defense and security, we lost Federica Mogherini, we lost Rose Gottmother at NATO. Have they been replaced in any way, do you think, here?
1: Do you mean are there any figures, any senior female figures? In the defense and security world, in the EU? Not so much, huh? But well, I don't know. So. No. no one that not one that 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 comes to mind there are a couple of senior female figures but they have not been as public as I think Federica Mogherini or Rose Gautamila have been number one nor have they been very public on the issue of women having said that I think Federica Mogherini was for a long time relatively uncomfortable about tackling the gender issue head-on and for good reasons that were her own whereas rose was always from day one such an advocate and i think she inspired so many of us uh by number one just just being good at what she does full stop woman or man it doesn't matter she was just excellent but she understood that it was her job to make sure that one people saw that a woman could do the job and could do it damn well Uh, but that you know, other other women should be given a a chance to shine.
0: We're still looking for for the you know, the woman leader in defence and security in in yes. Europe and NATO really.
1: But what's interesting is that it's not necessarily being about a, a female leader; it's about being a leader. Uh, and I think in general we 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 have a slight uh, lack of um, charisma of. Uh, you know charisma actually of uh, we don't we I I don't see a lot of very inspiring leaders around well I'm being a bit critical and I'm exaggerating a tad see it, but so. but it's true that we don't have a lot of people in the Brussels bubble where you immediately think wow, wow he or she damn that's something else
0: and you think that that's partly because of covid because in fact We're not interacting with them personally in most cases. We're only interacting really on screen since this commission took office. Um, Or is it just that, yeah, we have um, a charisma
1: deficit? Well, I think we have a charisma deficit. We've been encouraging, I mean, what we're seeing today is the result of 60 years of encouraging technocracy. Um, rather than, forgive me, I'm going to be a bit rude, but people actually having balls and, uh, or ovaries and putting them on the table and, uh, going ahead with, uh, with interesting policy ideas. Um, so that's one thing. And... If we do look at the last 18 months, um, if we look at the the, the the female leadership agenda, everything else has been swept off the table. Yeah. I mean, nothing major. It, 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 and it was obvious that this would happen. Because of COVID? Um, we didn't have the bandwidth to deal with. We, we, we because of the emergencies around COVID, because of everything else. And we've actually seen quite a lot happen, but a lot of stuff that was already in the works. Um, and just like we saw with the financial crisis back in the day, um, that's all that policymakers were 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 concerned with or had the bandwidth to actually deal with, and you know as well as I do that there is a, um, a political equilibrium and a kind of a give and take yeah. game that needs to happen. And when such a major crisis holds, then that's where all of that political maths almost goes.
0: I think that's very very true, but I think just to be slightly fair to the current commission, I mean, yeah, you know, this is the week in which they brought out Fit for Fifty Five and a variety of other policy initiatives over the past few weeks, so. And it is, you know, the first time that you have a recovery fund and, you know, sort of um, self uh, uh, funding for the um, um, I just sort of feel compelled to put that out there in terms of balance in one way or another. But Florence, how does it look to you in terms of the women in leadership in Brussels, in the defense and security area in general?
2: Yeah, I think there. I don't think about like a Bruxel of a female leadership figure right now because I think I don't find any. So I think it, is, uh, it speaks for itself. Um, but I, I think what is really interesting and what I really like about this city as well, and also it was really. Uh, thanks to WISE Network uh, as well that I have the opportunity to meet a lot of women with leadership, even though they are not in a position of leader, because I think that leadership as well is to bring, you know, just to inspire people. And it can be also in a bit you know, what is the limit between leadership and influence as well, and positive influence, of course. I think I learned a lot about leadership and how to act and how to uh, be present in a room from Pauline, for example, or from previous uh, women I work with in the defense sector, uh, also with you, Ilana, as well, you know. So I think it is more here that I find the inspiration source for charismatic people, charismatic women who have not afraid to say things, to uh, run crazy life besides work as well, have crazy work life, but having kids at the same time, I don't know how you deal with it. Like, I'm really impressed every time. But, you know, and do it everything in remote for one year and a half. And people that still, uh, yeah, want to help other young women who so want to inspire, who want to also give a little bit the the ideas to, uh, to the younger generation. So I think also maybe the whole idea of leadership now and especially with the social media and what everything it brings onto it uh i think it is more fragmented than uh that maybe in previous uh, periods here because everyone can have influence on a community and it's really easy and basically i could take my instagram and do and do some politics on it without any so much cost so i think it is Really interesting that everyone can be a leader on his own cycle as well now, more easily than before, I guess.
0: I think that's a very, very good point. I mean, I think it's also a lovely point that, you know, sort of when we talk about women in leadership, which is the title of our podcast, um, nonetheless, we we, we shouldn't forget that for women especially, I think it's always been uh, role models Mm -hmm. for each other. And, you know, sort of starting for some of us from our mothers, but just over time, if you're lucky enough, you will have met another woman who you've worked with for alongside, up, down, something like that, which will give you a sense Mm -hmm. of, ah, so that's a possibility. Ah, yes, that I can do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very important to remember in leadership that, you know, sort of it's not just about the position, it's not just about the title, it's about the reaching out, it's about showing that you can do something else and that you can do it um, alongside being a professional.
1: I would really support that. And I have to say, um, I find that having role models that I can actually call up on the phone or, or, or chat to uh, are a hell of a lot more empowering than a very remote figure uh, like, uh, I don't know, Cheryl Sandberg or, a, or a Madeleine Albright, who of course are massively inspiring. But it's that exchange. It's that. It's that knowing that they're there, and it's that almost informal mentoring, almost friendly mentoring, if you will. Um, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today, and I'm not exaggerating without the support of the wise gang um, who have over the years encouraged me to step out of my comfort zone to go for opportunities where I thought oh god I could never do this and who said just 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 go for it what's the worst that can happen and who've supported me but not just with blind enthusiasm but with very constructive input as to where my strengths would be, what I would need to improve, how to, anything from writing a CV or a cover letter or a motivational essay or preparing for interviews, anything like that. And even once in the job, you are regularly up against maybe not job specific situations, but management situations where you're a bit, "Mm, how should I deal with this issue? And they are a sounding board. And I think that this, this, encouraging network is key to female leadership, at the very least for me.
0: I think that's a, that's a very, very important point that tends to be forgotten. I really do think that tends to be forgotten and that's why women's networks are very, very important. So my last question is, in fact, nearly a complete 180 degrees from that, but there is one very senior position that's coming up and it's already being speculated upon, which is... The current NATO Secretary-General, Jens Stoltenberg, steps down um, in October next year, 2022. Mm -hmm. Um, Apparently, there's already three women um, who are potential candidates because it is perceived that it is time for there to be a woman Secretary-General. However, we know that that is usually the death knell of any of these things, because we know that before the current UN Secretary General was elected, there were only two criteria, really, that people were talking about. One, that it should be a woman, and one that she should be from Eastern Europe, and we ended up with a man from Western Europe. Mm -hmm. So what, in that case, the question should be, um, what can we do? What should be done to ensure, if we think it's important, that a woman should be the next Secretary General of NATO? Is it important, first of all?
2: Yeah, I think it is important, but as well, I think if you put it as a criteria, like it has to be a woman, then you open the door to hold uh really low-level criticism, and you wouldn't, I think you would not receive the same background check for a male, for a male candidate uh, at this point. So um, I guess again it is cultural but I guess we will have uh, a plenty of comment as well on the way they look like Mm -hmm. as well because a man will not receive this kind of uh, comment as well. So I think just emphasize on the fact that it is important because it brings just another perspective which is not so much different from the from maybe other male candidates because you can have a woman and a male candidate with a exact same background the only difference is that there will be the gender so they would have maybe a different perspective on certain problem and how to solve them but they will have the same education more or less and the same knowledge uh if we can say so But to not emphasize that he has to be a woman because she is a woman, you know.
1: Yeah. So I'm always a bit careful with quotas Uh, while I, bottom line, I believe in them, but I think they can backfire easily. Back to the NATO sec gen job. I think it's doubly important to have a woman, number one, symbolically, both internally and externally, I think it would be a key symbol. Uh, moreover, I think NATO really needs to think carefully about what it wants to do when it grows up. It's in a very, very different strategic environment today to date, where it was two, five, ten years ago. And it's going to have to navigate some really tough challenges in the years to come. Um, we all know about China, about the lessening role of the US, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing that nobody's talking about is the f- impact of the COVID crisis on defence budgets in 18 months, 24 months. That's going to hurt. And uh, the retreat from Afghanistan is just the beginning. So it's going to be a really tough world to navigate. And I think it will be interesting for once to have a different perspective on it. Um, I don't think it's impossible. Uh, we have a number a number of uh, female defence ministers who've done relatively good jobs. Some have done... Subpar jobs, but hey, I always say we will have won on the gender equality front that they the day that there are as many crap women as crap men in positions of power, forgive the vulgarity. I think that is a very good way of putting it because I do believe in quotas.
0: The reason I believe in quotas is not as an absolute thing, but usually quotas is the only way to begin to push. Um, for some form of parity and to normalise the situation in which that sector, be it women, be it minorities, be it, I don't know, whatever it is you want to call it, and not getting a look in. The only way in which you're going to um, do it is with either quotas or positive discrimination or call it what you will. I don't believe in it as an end in itself sure i've always believed i still believe that equality of opportunity is what women need Mm. not equality of jobs if you have an equal opportunity and people really look at who you are what you've achieved how you've achieved it what are your capabilities there wouldn't be such a problem but that's not really the case in many, um, in many ways. I couldn't agree with you more about the real challenges that NATO faces, but I think nonetheless, we should be out there rooting for a woman to head the organization, not least because of all the challenges that are ahead. I think you need a good, capable person who's capable of multitasking, and I believe women are more capable of multitasking, and of accepting that not everything is going to happen at the same time in the same way, as opposed to promising everybody that everything is going to happen in the way they want it, when they want it, how they want it, and then it doesn't.
1: So It needs a mother, doesn't it? It really does.
0: (laughs) It really, really, really does need a mother. (laughs) And I think that we all need to... um, bring this to a wrap, which it's been a really, really great pleasure talking to you two because we all need to go on our holidays. That's a wrap on this episode of WISE Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to Pauline Massard and Florence Ferrandon, my friends and colleagues at WISE. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Please continue the discussion with us at WISE Brussels on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe to Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast applications. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for more great conversations and above all, have a great summer.
2: Have such a good Wi-Fi but you have Pinot, so okay exactly <laughs> exactly. <laughs>